On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Pink Floyd's The Final Cut. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory, Tom Corcoran, and Paul Zotter as we cover Pink Floyd's The Final Cut. This is an interesting album, no doubt about it. Uh, Very heavy on the Roger Waters. This is three-man Pink Floyd. Richard Wright has been asked to leave and never come back. Um... Roger has some new friends he wants to to play with. If you read the wikis um, or any of the other uh, recorded histories about this time, this was not a pleasant experience for anyone involved in making this record. I find it to be extraordinarily humorous. Because at this point, remember the whole year of tax exile and we had to, you know, bring everything back together and then they did the tour and, and everything else. But now we're, we're presumably back in, in the UK. And so here we are. And I, I never followed up on the exact story, but I, I'm just perversely amused. After Wish You Were Here, the, the band built or bought and built themselves a studio, recorded animals there had to leave the country, so they could not record the wall there. And the final cut is recorded in like six different studios, none of which is Britannia Row Studios. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, you know, there, there's something about that that just kind of makes me chuckle. The original concept was for this to be a, a companion soundtrack to the, the wall, the movie. And I guess the working title was Spare Bricks. Mm-hmm. And then the Falkland, Falklands War broke out and Roger decided to, to change the, the theme and make it more, more modern. I, it is very interesting the way that comes together for me in that there are some, there are some very clear, at least one super huge lyrical callback mm-hmm. that ties this sort of early 1980s story, you know, directly to characters in the wall, specifically, you know, one of the teachers, which I find to be very, very interesting. Additionally, Paul, you had asked the question of which version are we doing? The Mm -hmm. one with or without when the Tigers broke free. And at the time, I I didn't even realize that I happened to own both versions of the final cut. (laughs) So at the time, I had my, my classic version. Now, I've got I've got the original version, obviously, on vinyl, but I have, I have both versions on CD. So at the time, I, was, I had my original classic version that I was using um, on CD that I was listening in the car or, or wherever in the house. And then over the weekend, I had to, I, it, was, it was in the car, so I had to go find my other version that I knew I had somewhere because it was inside the house, not outside the house. And I discovered that, lo and behold, I happen to have the, the the version that was redone that includes When the Tigers Broke Free. Now, When the Tigers Broke Free, originally, as we discussed, recorded for The Wall. 
Um, apparently it shows up in the movie, although I haven't watched the movie to, to say that for a fact. But I will say it fits, like musically and thematically, it fits perfectly in here. Although it kind of messes up the flow that I've gotten used to when I, when I listen to this record. I get a lot of the emotion that's being communicated here. And I went, I reached out to friend of the palaver, Ken Fuller, today because I wanted, you know, Roger presents this as a requiem for the post-war dream. And, you know, it comes off very angry, very bitter. There, there are no good guys. Everyone's a bad guy. Roger has a long list of grievances. It's like Festivus. <laughs> Clearly, right out of the gate, you have some lyrics that uh, can only be described as racist. And, you know, they, they sh those sort of things show up again later on. And you have to ask yourself, you know, much like we did with In the Flesh on the Wall... Is, is Roger really a racist? He can't be a racist, right? There has to be something else going on here. And when I, so I was looking for what was the context? What was going on? Was there, how bad was it really in the UK? I believe I've seen things on documentaries here and there, not necessarily about the UK specifically in, in the early 1980s. Um, it may have had something to do with the Falklands War or, you know, the, the British royal family. Who knows what the hell I watch? I watch all kinds of crazy shit. But I, I had some indication, and, and actually a lot of it maybe had came, now that I think about it, from Joe Strummer's autobiography, which will really tear at your heartstrings if you want to read that. So I reached out to Ken and I said, Ken, do, what do you know about the conditions in the UK in the early 80s? Was it really as bad as Roger is saying? Because, um, you know, the, the, the premise... As I get it, you know, and and I obviously I never lost, you know, a parent to a war, so I don't know what it's like to grow up having lost a father in World War II. Clearly, it affected Roger. There's no denying that, and the the premise, the overall premise of this album seems to be to me is. I and my family made this sacrifice. We gave our father, our husband, etc., to this war in the hopes that, you know, life would be better. And here we are, and it's a flaming wreckage. What the hell? So I asked Ken, uh, Ken Fuller, you know, what he could remember. So he summed it up here. He said, besides what I said already, the early 80s were all about post-war high unemployment, High inflation, 20% plus in 1980, economic recession, strikes, spending cuts, protests, and riots. IRA hunger strikes. So yes, pretty bad in the early 80s in Britain. Say what you want to about this musically, um, thematically, whatever else. From the point of view of someone whose family had made a sacrifice during World War II, for the hopes of a, of a better future and presumably a future that looked like it would be realized in the 50s and 60s, you know, the 80s were, by all accounts, at least as far as we can tell here on the Palaver, a very difficult time in Britain. So it, it makes a certain amount of sense that Roger altered his story because we know that Roger likes to, you know, likes to send messages. He likes to use his platform. 
take that for what it what you will in terms of the content here and you know the overall feel and theme of of the record so <clears throat> Joe were you under the impression I'm assuming when you're talking about the racist stuff in the beginning we're talking the the nips building ships line I mean that to me is I'm assuming that he's talking about you know the soldiers who were you know, through through the soldier's eyes. I mean, I didn't. I, I've never thought it was his. So here's the thing. Um, clearly, you know, "nips" was a racist term that came about um, during the war. I don't know if it came about during the war, but it's clearly associated with World War II. And, and aside that, I would like to throw in here. I'm always somewhat amused. My my kids play Star Wars Battlefront all the time. And, and I, I'm kind of conflicted about how I feel about this. But when you play as the side of the clones and you're going against the, the battle droids, there are all these essentially racist epithets that the clones have for the battle droids. Now, part of the reason why presumably Star Wars uses battle droids is because it's not a bad thing if you kill a machine. So, by extension, is it not a bad thing if you say racist things about the machine? I, I don't know. I just find that to be kind of funny. It is part of, presumably, war to, you know, essentially slander your uh, your enemy. And, and if it was just that, I, I would agree with you. However, when, when you read, when I read the rest of the lines around that, um, and it's talking about the post-war dream, so very specifically about the post-war dream, when I look at this, I look at this, you know, this is modern. This is, you know, 1983. This is the introduction to the theme, as it were. If it wasn't for the Nips being so good at building ships, the yards would still be open on the Clyde. That says to me, this is the impact, the economic impact in Britain of, of 1980s Japan shipbuilding. Um, mm -hmm. And it can't be much fun for them beneath the rising sun with all their kids committing suicide. So you and and maybe what's going on here, because I, I, I struggled with this this passage. So I'm glad you brought it up specifically, Tom. I struggled with this because I'm trying to figure out what exactly we have. So presumably. There is someone who was in the war, I guess who made it back from the war and is now, you know, unhappy with the way things are going, and they may still be carrying around those prejudices? I don't know. Either that or Roger Waters is, in fact, truly racist. But these lyrics are tied to then present day as I read them. I kind of take the same meaning. I mean, I remember, you know, my dad was... He was born in 36, so he was, you know, he was only 10 by the time World War II was over. And, um, and he, he, uh, was very nationalistic. He was like one of those guys when I was growing up, like when in the 80s, he was one of those guys that you absolutely couldn't buy a foreign car. <laughs> um, you know, when people were like, oh, you know, I got a Mitsubishi, his um, his response would be, well, my uncle was shot down by a Mitsubishi. Oh, um, Jesus. You know, he, he would say he would say things like that. And um, so I, you know, I took it the same way. Right. Like if you are affected by by that, 
and you know you're looking at the current state of affairs and you can draw back to you know where it all started that's kind of how i i i took it as well incidentally suicide is apparently a big deal in japan it is not not a a, a good thing and in 1980 they were leading the world in suicide really actually they were leading the world in suicide from 1960 to 1980, which is, as far as I can tell in this article, when they started counting. Only until, I guess, Russia started accounting for their suicides in the mid-80s. I mean, they, Russia was just ridiculous. But Russia, suicide rate has fallen greatly in the last 20 years. But uh, Japan has been on top of the suicide charts, um, you know, for the last 60 years. Kudos to the Palaver Research Department. I was not aware of that... Uh that ongoing trend so that that now absolves roger waters from being a racist because he was in fact describing again the situation at the time as i read it i'd agree i think we're well yeah and he's doing it in character you're right yeah And, and that's that's the thing with with roger right you've got to be careful when he's in character and when he's not in character and you know that line can be blurred honestly a lot of it, it's the laundry list at the end of Not Now John, which sort of clued me off that, you know, this wasn't this. This should not be taken at face value for for what it was. But it it, it is still again. And, and I've, I've said this about Roger. Roger likes to get up in your face. I find it to be very interesting that if you take a very, very big step back and look at the the, the general direction and, and messaging that come from both David and Roger. And, and I, I had a quote from David that says this. They're, they're pointing in the same direction, but they do it in such different ways. It's mm. phenomenal. Yeah. I think I should insert the timeline of Progressive Rock. It's, uh... I think you should. It's not coming naturally to this episode, but it's something that we do. (laughs) As we know, The Wall, the album, was released in 1979. And there is a huge uh, gap in between, you know, 1979 and 1983, March in particular, when the final cut is released. Now, lucky for us... We didn't have a lot of prog during that period, so it won't take too long to get through this. But, you know, ju- just jumping through 80, 81, 82, 80 was Permanent Waves. It was Duke. It was Gabriel Three. We just had that, that, that episode, Drama, from Yes. Alan Parsons Project, Turn of a Friendly Car, jumping to 1981. Rush Moving Pictures. ELO Time, Steve Hackett Cure, Genesis Zappa Cab, King Crimson, Discipline, Frank Zappa, You What You Is, Saga Worlds Apart, 1981, October, jumping to 1982, On the Asia loop. Asia, Jethro Tull, Broadsword and the Beast. Uh, Genesis, Three Sides Live, King Crimson, Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel, Rush Signals, 
Super Tramp, famous last words. And jumping finally to 83 March, the final cut is released. So that wasn't a ton of prog-related material. And you could say prog is waning at this point. And, and, and you may not want to call the final cut a prog album. <laughs> Hold on to that, Ken, actually. <laughs> funny you should say that and and i'll do i'll do my bit but there's another album that comes out presumably later in 1983 that you know if if this is you know the downward trajectory of pink floyd if i want to say that think about the contrast to 90125 that also comes out in 1983 tremendously different Mm-hmm. Um, for any number of reasons. Well, that's an album made by like, I don't know, three core people, four. I mean, plus, you know, keep bringing in people if you count, you know, Tony and John. So, right. So many human influences, whereas this is one massive human. Yes. <laughs> I, it, it's it's curious, uh, you know. It's just funny. I mean, you bring up nine zero one two five, and when you when you mentioned Asia to Ken, it occurs to me that this this was right. This was the time when the Prague bands were trying to find themselves a commercial outlet, rather purposely. When you consider Asia coming out and 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 all of its goodness, yet it's 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 such a slant towards a commercial sound. I mean, the final cut is nothing like that at all. I mean, it doesn't even pretend to say, uh, let's, let's put something on the radio. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So, as Ken mentioned, the final cut was released on 21st of March, 1983. It was produced by Roger Waters, James Guthrie, and Michael Kamen. Interesting side note. Apparently, Roger became unhappy with David and removed his name from the production credits, although he was paid production royalties. Really? That's what it says. Um, It was released on the labels Harvest and Columbia. The personnel include David Gilmore, um, Nick Mason, Roger Waters, and additional musicians include Michael Kamen and Andy Brown doing uh, piano, Hammond organ, and harmonium. Ray Cooper on percussion. Um, Nick Mason was deemed um, not capable of providing the appropriate uh, drum feel for Two Sons in the Sunset, and so was replaced on that track by Andy Newmark. Saxophone duties not handled by member of the... um, of the Cambridge Mafia. Um, Dick Perry. What's that? Not not Dick Perry. Not not Dick Perry. Uh, it was Raphael Ravenscroft. And backing vocals are credited as Doreen and Irene Chanter. And it does feature the National Philharmonic Orchestra. The track listing includes The Post-War Dream, Your Possible Pasts, One of the Few, The Hero's Return, The Gunner's Dream, Paranoid Eyes, Get Your Filthy Hands Off My Desert, The Fletcher Memorial Home, Southampton Dock, The Final Cut, Not Now John, and Two Sons in the Sunset. And as we've already discussed, the 2004 re-release also included 
when the Tigers broke free um, in the number four slot. The final cut, subtitle, A Requiem for the Post-War Dream by Roger Waters, is the 12th studio album by English rock band Pink Floyd, released on 21st March 1983 in the United Kingdom and on 2nd April in the United States through Harvest and Columbia Records. It comprises unused material from the previous Pink Floyd album record The Wall, along new, alongside new material recorded throughout 1982. The final cut was the last Pink Floyd album to feature founding member Roger Waters, who departed in 1985. It is also the only Pink Floyd album not to feature founding member and keyboardist Richard Wright, who was fired during the Wall sessions. The recording was plagued by conflict. Guitarist David Gilmour felt many of the tracks were not worthy of inclusion, but Waters accused him of failing to contribute material himself. Drummer Nick Mason's contributions were mostly limited to sound effects, which is a similar tag that's applied to Nick on Momentary Lapse of Reason, by the way. Waters planned the album as a soundtrack for the 1982 film adaptation of The Wall. With the onset of the Falklands War, he rewrote it as a concept album exploring what he considered the betrayal of his father who died serving in the Second World War. Waters provided lead vocals for all but one track, and he is credited for all songwriting. The album was accompanied by a short film released in the same year. The final cut received mixed reviews, though retrospective reception has been more favorable. It was a commercial success, reaching number one in the UK and number six in the US. Can I just say something about this post-war it's, it's 38 years from the end of World War II until this album was released. Um, we had, in America, the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Uh, fortunately, the UK stayed out of those conflicts, I guess. Um, they didn't have a draft like we did, and they weren't that interested, and I guess they were too decimated to to uh, think as the U.S. did, um, fortunately. But um, that's a tremendous period, 38 years, when the Americans are just flipping through wards like, like a death, deck of cards. Are, are you implying, Ken, that it's a long time to have um, a lack of wars, or is it really too long after the fact to be... Um, lamenting the death of the post-war dream. Well, I'm not one to rob anyone of their personal lament. I mean, that's their right. Um, and heaven forbid, an entire nation. I can't rob an entire nation of their lament. But I, I, I would just say it, it, it's just a different experience for the Americans and and, and the British. And, you know, just, just you yeah. know, Britain had no conflict until the Falklands, and, and that's probably precisely, precisely Roger's point. Right. I'd like to make a few statements and sort of get your reaction to them before we go in, because there, there are a couple of aspects to this when you look at this, this record. One, it's a lot of Roger. Two, there's no Richard Wright. These are obvious facts that sort of play into this. And between the final cut and a momentary lapse of reason, there's a very interesting, you know, narrative that develops when you sort of pivot around those two records. 
So here's the first statement I would like to make. In this record, the final cut, the keyboards serve the songs, but they do not drive them. Fair statement? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Yep. Well, I mean, Richard Wright had his moments in the early catalog, but I remember when we were talking about, um, I believe it was Us and Them, right? That was really driven by Wright's obsession with, you know, a specific chord and, and, and he has a beautiful discussion of that in that documentary. And, you know, even in the wall episodes, we talked about, you know, there was, there was some of that magic missing from Richard in, in that. And one of the things that, that struck me in the multiple times I've listened to this is, you know, the, the, the keyboardists who are credited, you know, I think they, in some respects, they, they try to do what, you know, maybe they thought a Pink Floyd keyboarded sound should sound like, but it, it, it's, it's clearly the influence and the particular flavor from Richard is not here. That was my point. The second, and you guys both touched on this in slightly different ways. I'm going to make the statement that this album is essentially progressive in the fact that it is almost entirely non-standard in structure. There is absolutely no concern or regard for what a song should be. I like it. Yes. To its fault, I would say. And, and it, it, it may go too far, but that is, you know, when we talk, you know, we, it's always fun here on Progressive Palaver to decide if something is in fact progressive or not. I think in, in that regard, it is. Um, and I think that's one of the things that ultimately is going to hamper Roger going forward when he doesn't have the influence of the other band members to, mm. to temper that, that devil may care. I've got, this brilliant idea, I think, I think he, his music ultimately suffers for that. Whereas on the flip side, David by his nature is probably more melodic and more geared toward building quote unquote songs. Not saying one's right or wrong, be that as it may. As we've talked about before, like, you know, Roger was a driving creative force behind a lot of what's been happening at Pink Floyd for years now, but he, at varying degrees has always been open to the influence of the people around him. We talked about the wall, how even though the entire thing is Roger and his story, like it's like there are times where all you hear is David Gilmore. You know, when you have that that great collaborative effort, when you have that, you know, a lot of characters supporting and contributing to a creative vision, you have great results. When you end up with just a bunch of yes people around you that are like okay we'll just do whatever whatever roger says um and anybody who disagrees just gets cast aside i i I think you you get something that's less less good and the and the creative vision the creative vision while it might meet roger's vision to the way it's translated to the to the masses is probably diminished yeah, I think that's that's very well said. Thank you, Paul. So I, I want to add something real quick. First of all, Paul, you painted a beautiful picture of that, but also what I think happened during uh, Star Wars Episode 1, 2, and 3. George Lucas had <laughs> yes people around. I don't want to get into that whole thing. I promise I won't digress. 
But getting back, getting back <laughs> to what you were both talking about, my one of my overall thoughts was that Richard Wright is really missed in this. It's not just that he wasn't there. It's that he, he really needs to be there. And what I think happened, and from an interview I, I heard with David Gilmore, the song When the Tiger Broke Free that was in the movie, but not the Wall album, the other members of, of Pink Floyd didn't want that song in there because it was too personal to Roger Waters. To quote them, they didn't feel comfortable with it because it was too personal. It obviously made the movie. It obviously made this cut of the final cut. But what we have here is a very, very personal story. And in a personal story, we have a very narrow production, almost like a, like a Bob Dylan-ish sort of production where it's, he's just, very few instruments. It's a very intimate, personal journey that one person is taking. And I think that Roger Waters, he still had leftover stories to tell from the wall about his personal journey, if you will. And Richard Wright was just really getting in the way. Now, another side to that is he felt that Richard Wright wasn't contributing but he may have been that he just wasn't contributing what Roger Waters wanted him to contribute. So there's a lot of, you know, things that we could assess here. But my big thing, my big problem with this album is you really do miss the Floyd sound. Even in the wall, it, it was hard to tell which was Richard Wright's playing and, and which were some of the other players that were brought in. But still, there was enough to sort of give it that Pink Floyd grandeur and this album does not have that that grandeur and it's just almost like a feeling of Roger Waters sitting in a room lamenting I never have a problem with that per se I like dark subject matter it's just not Pink Floyd and I think that the main reason for me is Richard Wright Tom I think that's an actually excellent segue into my third and final statement about this album. This is related to what I have now come to lovingly refer to as the Kersner theory. I think there are great melodic moments on this album, but they're very fleeting, and Roger never lets any of the melodies percolate. There's a very big part of me that finds that frustrating. You kind of go through, as you said, you know, you're, you're in, sitting in the dark lamenting, and then there's 15, 20, 30 seconds that get you to sit up, and you're like, oh, yeah! And, and then you're back, and you're lamenting again. Huh. So, What uh, exactly did Dave Kersner say to earn this illustrious award? Do you remember the one interview we had with Dave where he was talking, and, and I'll, I'll paraphrase because I can't remember exactly, but he said something along the lines of, if it's cooking, let it cook. Uh -huh. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and Roger doesn't let anything cook here because, and I think this is to your point, Tom, he's got a story to tell. He's not worried about cooking a meal. He's telling you a story. And, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I think if, if some of these things were allowed to cook a little bit more, it might be, you know, a little bit more grabby and more 
more Pink Floydy. Well said. So I'll be your foil in this episode. Whose foil? I feel that there are enough cooking moments. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, awesome. feel, I feel that the mel- melodies really do fold back in on themselves. And I mean, I, I, well, he I uses- had a copy of this on cassette because I stayed up till two o'clock in the morning and recorded it off the radio when whatever, you know, classic rock station was playing album sides on Sunday nights. I listened to it as much of, of the wall. I don't know why, because it's not as clearly commercial. It's not as appealing as the wall, but I just, I just love the melodies here. So, so I, I, I plan to come to, to Roger's defense, no matter what you say in this episode. The statements that I made are probably as quote unquote negative as I'm going to get because I love this album to the extent that I am able. There's a lot about it. What does that, that mean? Well, I, it's a difficult album to love in some regards because it, it is so different. I find myself, you know, happily singing along, um, with this record. I, I was thinking today, I really like the way Roger's vocal delivery is on this record. I find it to be very clear and, in, and, and enjoyable. And for me, very easy normally to sing along with. And I was just looking through the wikis earlier on today to find out that Roger is quoted as saying he hates his, his, his vocals on this record. So it's like, I, I apparently don't know what the, what the oh. hell's going on. Well, that, that makes two of us that hate his vocals. On, um, <laughs> listen, I'm not, I don't want to belabor it, but I have a lot of pro- uh, problems with this record. I just don't like it. I don't really want to be super critical about it because every time I listen to it, I hear something that, that I really like and that I really hate. I do really like the story. As much complaining as it's happening, I really do like how it's communicated. The, the, the lyrics are, are really good and strong and they're colorful and powerful. I love the idea of bringing the, the teacher back. We talked a little bit about in our wall episode about like the, the, the pattern of abuse that goes across generations. And yeah. here he brings the character back and, and you get to, you get to experience his point of view, which is tremendous, I think. My biggest problem with it, though, are, I guess there's probably three things that bother the hell out of me about it. The one thing is, for me, it's about dynamics. There isn't any kind of build to these songs. None of these songs start a certain way, build into, and move somewhere. They just are revolving patterns of quiet and loud. Kind of like Brave. It's... (laughs) I was the other night I was thinking, man, if we ever catch up with Dave Megan and he says, oh, one of my favorite albums of all time is the final cut. I'm gonna <laughs> shit myself. <laughs> <laughs> but but it but to me it is. It's just it's super quiet and it's and then it's super loud and then it comes right back down. You're just it's back and forth, back and forth. And and I just don't find that appealing. There are there are a lot of spots where I wish they would go back to the uh, Roger Waters, David Gilmore vocal thing. I think there are certain songs that are perfectly built for that, but it's all Roger. And for whatever reasons, I think that it suffers because of it. And then to me, there are just a couple of things that just 
you know, bother me, like the lullaby-ish part of the post-war dream and, you know, some of the string arrangements that are just so obvious, a tip of the hat to Comfortably Numb, which is fine. I just kind of feel like there are moments when it's like they're just, it's just like it's, it's like a sophomore album all these years later. That's where I am at with the final cut, and I'll just enjoy the, the rest of, of your uh, so analysis. So are, are we going song by song on this one, or are we, because I, I have a little story that sort of sums up my uh, thoughts on this, but it has to do with the, the really the second song. I, I don't so, know that we, we necessarily have to. Um, okay. I think we nailed the first song. We already did the lyrics, so let's jump right into that second song. Okay. I want to share this story with you. Last night, or this morning rather, 4 a.m. in the morning, I wake up. I was in the studio. You I woke up move. in the studio? Yes, I couldn't move. I was almost like paralyzed because my back was all jacked up. I had fallen asleep in my chair. I didn't know how I had gotten to where I was, like what I was doing before I fell asleep. Normally, if I fall asleep or something, it's like, you know, a short period of time. And I'm like, okay, I'll get up. But I was sort of like freaked out because it was so late. It was early in the morning and I, I didn't, I just couldn't remember anything about what had happened. I was just very disoriented. After like a minute of sort of like getting my wits about me, I realized that I had fallen asleep listening to the final cut and I had, I had put it on at 10 o'clock. And it was now you know, 4, 4 a.m. I was in such a deep sleep, I, I didn't wake up at all. And it was, it was a real, real deep sleep. It was, a, it was a very strange sleep. The interesting part of this isn't that I fell asleep during the final cut, which says a lot right there. But I looked down at my notes. There were only two notes. The last note was, I'm going to read you the, the note. <laughs> It says, I like the phrasing in your personal, in your possible pass. The fact that Waters pauses before finishing the end of each line kept me listening. Interesting. But it didn't keep me listening. I fell asleep. I, I, pa- I passed out. <laughs> I was like a, 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 drug, a drug. So, I mean, I, my, my point to all this is that I love what's going on, but it's very hard to keep me interested. I'm with you, Paul. I love the lyrics to this album, and there are certain beautiful moments in the melody. And I do like the personal feel, but it, the personal feel needs to be you know, peppered throughout, not dumped on like thick cream. And what that means to me is your possible past that has great moments and it has just enough great moments for you to say, oh, that was cool. But bang, I'm out like a light. Like it just, it just can't <laughs> keep me going. And it sort of reminded me of the, of the text thread that went out uh, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about some um, um, hitchhiking, pros and cons of hitchhiking. And I was talking about how I had that when I was a, you know, when I was a teenager, I loved it. I thought I loved it. I couldn't remember anything about it. I love. I would. I would. I would listen to it, fall asleep, and then wake up to the the main song, pros and cons of hitchhiking, at the end, which the, the song I like, I actually really like, 
And so I, I thought, okay, maybe it's just me. I'm, I'm, I'm missing something. But to me, the fact that I keep falling asleep during these um, <laughs> Roger Waters moments, it, it says something to me. So uh, I can't, as much as I do agree with some of your thoughts about this, the, the, the positive thoughts, that is, about some of these moments, it's just Roger Waters has a big problem with me after the wall and mm -hmm. i even i listen i bought amused to death you know and i think i listened to it twice and i remember saying oh i like it but i just i just never listened to it you know i just i never i thought i liked it because i love pink floyd so much and i mm -hmm. like the sound of his voice and i like what he's putting down to me when roger waters is by himself and yes even though this has a pink floyd name on it this is roger waters by himself I don't care. I, he just loses me. You know, there's a couple songs at the end that I, I, I really do like. I like the, I love the last song on this album. But he has to understand that it's as much for other people as it is for him. And I think I there are people that we listen to that understand that. Yes, you have to do things that are true to you and that you love. But you do also have to understand that you have an audience. And I think he somehow, maybe there was so much pressure with all the commercial success that they had with the last four albums, especially with The Wall. And maybe he just said, fuck it. I'm making this the way I want to make it. And the thing is, it takes two to tango. You have to have your audience with you. Yeah. And, um, and, well, and that's just, it just, it just doesn't doesn't work for me and if there was a time to do it it was probably now because you know if it went to number one and number six it did so off of the strength of everything that came before it they didn't even tour for this the, the interviews that i saw about these guys talking about the final cut were from backstage at their tours supporting their own solo albums david gilmore on his solo tour and and roger waters on his solo tour even that is is kind of amusing, but it it, it tells the state of affairs, I guess. So. I'm avowed to defend Roger here, and I'm going to go with the chorus. Do you remember me? How we used to be? Do you think we should be closer? And my obvious retort to that is, wow, if it's gotten to that point, isn't it over? <laughs> Do you think we should be closer? Well, if you're asking the question. You're not very close. That gives me chills. I feel his message, even if it's putting people to sleep and if it's alienating, he's still just as powerful. And the way, you know, it, this is a this is a drawback for, for Paul, but the sort of swelling, bombastic music that accompanies those choruses, it's a callback to, you know, classic Pink Floyd. We're only, you know, four years beyond the wall, but... You know, there's enough difference that's going on here that in some ways it feels a little artificial, but it still has that in that very short space, that big swelling feel. The second time when they do that and they have sort of the fake out lead in and then, you know, they hold it for a beat and then they, they actually come in. And it's just I, I do dig that. Now, can I agree with you on the chills on that chorus? There's actually... <laughs> 26 years ago, when the White Car Project was alive and viable, I was noodling around in the studio, and I must have been listening to this a lot, because I was noodling around on my bass, and I ended up doing this little ditty, it was probably about 
you know, 90 seconds, maybe two minutes. And I sang this verse or this, yeah, this chorus on top of it because I couldn't get it out of my head. And it was, it was just in there. And I still, I, I will still spontaneously sing that chorus just out of the blue, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing. You know, incidentally, Ooh, can we go back and listen to it if if we <laughs> if find can, those cassettes? If, if we I should. can find it, it's interesting to note that based on your statement, which sounds like you you do not consider the White Car Project to be alive and well at this time, and yet you have five times the gear. I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> I have I have great activation energy that must be overcome. I recognize this. What's it? Bill Hubauer, I forget, but some I, I was reading someone connected to our podcast, and, and the line was, "Well, that's one of those things you just can't call up an order from Sweetwater, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like you, you can call Sweetwater for so many things, but you're not going to revive the White Car Project, Joe, unless you do it." <laughs> uh, well, yes. When I talk about uh, the final cut, and, and I'll try to sort of cut to the chase here, for me, the, the real power of this record is on the first side. I, I think I think the post-war dream sets the table wonderfully. We've talked about your possible pasts. I appreciate the dynamic issue, and, and that's one of the things that I said, you know, I, this is an area where I don't think Roger lets things cook all the time. If there was more of the chorus and less of the lullaby stuff, it, it might be more palatable. One of the few is appropriately creepy. This is Sinister Roger. I like it. But for me, really, the hero's return and the gunner's dream are, I think these two songs are absolutely phenomenal. They give me chills. And you guys have each spoken about the lyrics on this album. The Hero's Return really talks about that. Jesus, Jesus, what's it all about? Trying to clout these little ingrates into shape. So this is where we're inside our our teacher's head from the wall. When I was their age, all the lights went out. There was no time to whine and mope about. You're getting that that perspective, right? And, And it's a valid perspective. You know, look, when I was your age, Fucking bombs were falling from the sky for crying out loud. What are you guys right. whining about? You can kind of, you can kind of get that. But then they switch into that super creepy part. And Paul, I don't know if this is one of the, the songs where you were thinking that maybe the juxtaposition of the two vocals would be nice. But mm. this, this next section, it gets into me and it, it, it haunts me. And even now part of me flies over Dresden at Angels 1-5. I don't know what Angels 1-5 means, but it sounds really bad. Probably some sort of, you know, air formation or whatever. Though they'll never fathom it, behind my sarcasm, desperate memories lie. And yes. so now our character has just exposed himself and is completely vulnerable to us in a way that we will see later on he maybe isn't with his own wife, right? And, mm. and man, the way that Roger builds this, this narrative is really quite amazing. And then, sweetheart, sweetheart, are you fast asleep? Good. That's the only time I can really speak to you. I, I mean, that, mm. that's, that's painful to hear. Then it goes into the gunner's dream. Well, can, can I just say before you move too quickly? Yeah. And this is packaged in 
and a dry 80s kind of momentary lapse of reason production like like it it's it's the most modern sounding production of this yeah. whole album because he's using french horns and orchestras and michael came into the max and yet the the there's a lot of just chorus clean guitar here that 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 propels it weirdly into the early 80s present yeah okay so then then into the gunner's dream what really gets me after the service when you're walking slowly to the car and the silver in her hair shines in the cold november air that repetitive rhyme in there is so beautiful oh my god i love it and and it again it's one of those times when roger with with just a few words is able to evoke such a clear image you can totally see this you hear the tolling bell and touch the silk in your lapel and as the teardrops rise to meet the comfort of the band you take her frail hand breath and then he just and hold on to the dream and the way that dream like that scream blends right into the saxophone coming in and then <laughs> at the end of it all you know after you get this this killer solo section you actually get what i interpret to be the gunner's dream it's a manifesto of what the post-war dream is supposed to be about it's supposed to be safety and justice for everyone needs should be met there shouldn't be fear and hunger it's a beautiful it's a beautiful um uh, exposition of of you know presumably what roger himself holds near and dear if you watch the the short film it's really a shame because in this particular point um a a veiled roger his face is veiled in shadow very mysterious and you can just see the the trademark roger waters mouth and and that is the way that these these lyrics are delivered mm. in the video coming from roger shrouded in shadow in in a pseudo psychiatrist's office who looks surprisingly like thomas dolby as the schoolmaster <laughs> It's just, it's completely incongruous. And the visual does not in any way match the the power that I get from the audio when I just listen to this. I think the second half of this album, when you talk about the Fletcher Memorial Home and Not Now John, and, and even Southampton Dock and, and maybe the final cut, I mean, they're more, they're more structured, singly type songs. But for me, the big payoff is in the first half of this record. Mm. Okay, wonderful. I mean, I mean, the first half was all foreplay to me, but uh, <laughs> I have a new appreciation. <laughs> I mean, but it, but it's fantastic foreplay. Get your filthy hands off my desert. It it just makes me laugh. I love the sort of uh, the the theatrical <laughs> introduction to that, where you hear the guy yelling, "Hey, get your filthy hands off my desert!" And then you hear the uh, the incoming rocket and explosion, which is you know kind of funny. And then it goes into the the Fletcher Memorial Home, which I think is a is a. Wait, one how did we not do Paranoid Eyes? I don't know because I didn't want to talk about it. Oh, the <laughs> lyrics are amazing. Button your lip, don't let the shield slip. Take a fresh grip on your bulletproof mask, and if they try to break you, break down your disguise with their questions, 
You can hide, hide, hide behind paranoid eyes. Ah, oh, brilliant, brilliant. Okay, go on. Okay, yeah. you can do the next tune. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the the one line from that that really gets me is um, in the the last stanza. You believed in their stories of um, fame, fortune, and glory. Now you're lost in a haze of alcohol, soft middle age. Which just Love that. <laughs> that's a that's a very powerful line to me. And he's a, he's in like thirty nine or forty in, in this period. I believe so. So, yeah. yeah. When we talk about the Fletcher Memorial Home, I think it's it's a wonderfully done satire piece of you know, and I there there's so much here that he pulls in, um, you know, taking all these these historical bad guys, putting them in a home where they can do no harm to anyone but themselves, and and ultimately, you know, and, and this is where he he turns it on his head. Because he gets them all in a room, and he applies the final solution, which, of course, was, you know, the euphemistic uh, phrase for the the Nazi Holocaust program. So, you know, Roger is taking that weapon of fear and hate and turning it back against the perpetrators of fear and hate, which I think is, is you know, it's, it, it's understood, well-received, and I like it. Well, this comes up in the interviews. Paul, did you hear that? He does, in the interview I heard, spend probably more time on any this one more than any song, uh, particularly because I guess it was current events. But he set his priority on pitying the leaders rather than hitting them. So they, they would need this place to just be themselves to like a like a yeah. an insane asylum. And again, when you go down this list, there are no good guys. I find Southampton Dock to be sort of a, a bit of a sleeper. Um, I think again, a lot of the symbolism really gets me. The last stanza again: still the dark stain spreads between their shoulder blades, a mute reminder of the poppy fields and graves. When the <sighs> fight was over, we spent what they had made, but in the bottom of our hearts. We felt the final cut, which is, you know, a, a wonderfully crafted stanza of words. And the fact that it, the last line is the final cut, which leads into the track, the final cut, you know, sort of brilliant the way that's constructed. I do find it funny. <coughs> this is the second time that he has invoked the image of the poppy. Now, traditionally, as I understand it, the poppy is actually... Um, usually associated with, with the carnage from World War One. I. I guess in, in Roger's view, war is war and it's all good. And, and it, it brings that image to mind, whether it's in 1917 or 1944, right. doesn't really matter. Right. Poppies, helicopters, it doesn't really matter when they were, when they were involved or not. Yes. Yeah. For me, Southampton Dock and the final cut, the two, I mean, you know, they could be one song for me, but, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, the way Joe, you said in the bottom of our hearts, we felt the final cut and that goes immediately into the song, the final cut, but everything before it is absolutely gorgeous. Here again, when we talk about the, the journey of our, our character, so to speak, when you get into the back half of the final cut and he's already sort of exposed himself to us. But at this point, he now turns, presumably, to his partner and says, 
And if I show you my dark side, will you still <sighs> hold me tonight? And if I open my heart to you, show you my weak side, what would you do? Would you sell your story to Rolling Stone? Would you take the children away and leave me alone? And smile in the reassurance as you whisper down the phone. <sighs> would you send me packing or would you take me home? Holy crap! <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that line just rips through my heart. Hey, I mean, this is this is world class vulnerability right here, and the fact that it's coming from someone who I just an hour ago raked over the coals as being a self absorbed jackass. It's amazing that he's able to plumb these depths and provide these lyrics and this delivery. It's stunning. I, I think this jacket is worthy of, of, you know, being part of the Floyd catalog on its own. Now, we talked about the emotive recording that Bob Ezrin was able to get from Roger on the wall, and there are like two or three major moments. This is pretty close. The, the production is less ambient and maybe less ballsy but it's still so emotional so what if you know michael Kamen is just repeating the orchestration from comfortably numb it totally fits the story it totally fits the character we already know that this is the b-sides from the wall anyway yeah i was i was gonna say that yeah. and you know it, it in some ways it seems very obvious and like the wall part two but that's kind of how it started. So in some regards, that's that's genuine to a degree. He delivers these lyrics so genuinely and so passionately. And I, I can't think of another album where you can hear all of the lyrics so clearly. Like you don't have to go to the words to yeah. try to figure out what, what is he saying there? Like he he is delivering it flawlessly yeah and who is the so there's no bob ezrin here it's just roger michael kamen and yeah, yeah it, it, it it's stellar vocal production i think that's why it roped me in even on a bad cassette tape off the radio because you could hear every damn thing yeah not now john interesting song as teenagers when we got into pink floyd and, and found the final cut Obviously, this is this is the one you're drawn to because it's sort of the the big lambasty rocker, and they say fuck a lot, and isn't that funny? He 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 he. I don't know that it holds up particularly well for me in that regard. Oh, come on, come on, and j just the back and forth between the two parts, between the the really raucous verses and the emotional parts. Oh, it's brilliant. I'm so happy to get a break from Roger Waters. Um, <laughs> I'm loving the poem, but I think if you put it in a different context, I might I might agree with you, Joe. But uh, I think you really need something at this point like that um, to really mix it up a little bit. So when I get when I get to this part, it's like a glass of cold water that I need. Here's the thing that I can't get away from when I hear vocalization of industrial sounds all i can think of is fucking allentown huh, and i don't want to i don't want to be thinking about billy joel when i'm listening to pink floyd i, I don't fair <laughs> fair statement but but i mean i mean wait wait 
<laughs> this nation and all developed nations time period were powerful because of their industrial potential and their I, I get that fuel capacity and 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 that's exactly what he talked about in the interview. Um, and, and, and I get that. The problem I have is I have been trained from listening to Billy Joel's Allentown so much that when I hear vocalization of industrial sounds, that's what I think about. Well, and, how about this? Stop listening to Billy Joel's Allentown. Well, I haven't listened to Billy <laughs> Joel's late. Allentown in, you know, My elbow hurts when I do this. Too late. <laughs> You know, and and so that's 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 my own deal. It's just it's yeah. a weird thing, but well, it's it's not terribly weird because incidentally, Billy Joel's Allentown was the n- number forty three on the Billboard Year End Hot One Hundred from nineteen eighty three. So, so they did this in the <sighs> same year. How bizarre! It, man. it it fits quite it fits quite nicely into the overall narrative, Joe. I have a fun story about <laughs> not not now, John. In my freshman year of college, I'm pretty sure I, I, I pissed off most of the people who lived in, in the bottom end of my wing because for almost the entire, well, at least the first semester until I came home and got into Rush, the, the first year, all I listened to was Fragile, A Night at the Opera, and The Wall. And, you know, you're in a dorm, you blast it loud. To, maybe to get back at me, the guy who lived directly to my left, played only three songs for the entire freshman year. One was Final Eyes, which was a pleasure. <laughs> Two was Gonna Hitch a Ride by Boston. I'm not really sure how that Weird. worked into the whole thing. And the third one was Not Now John. <laughs> and it all. wasn't as part of the wall. It was just like he would walk into his room, he would crank up the speakers, and boom. And and so after a year of, of hearing just that song, I, I just learned to develop sort of a, a just a negative response to it overall. But I but I'm with you, Tom. By this time of the record, it's perfect. That's exactly what I need. This is the part of the album that I'm starting to like. And then boom, I get a nice big fat dose of David Gilmore right right in my Right in my face. And and we all like big fat doses of David Gilmore. Gotta pay for the white Japanese. It's the best <laughs> Gilmore ever. Oh my god. It's great. Too many home fires burning and not enough trees. So fuck all that. We gotta get on with these. But don't you really feel like the the the, the captured you know, I, just just something real. He he they he he slash they very much captured the soulless corporate culture. I get that. Mm. I really, really do. And, and I'm on board. I do think, let me ask you this, because another thought that I had, we know that Roger has been uncomfortable with fame. We know that Roger has railed against quote unquote the machine in various songs. Is is there anything to be read into the fact that we have the 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 female backup chorus singers singing fuck all that? I mean, is is that a veiled shot? A you know, biting the hand that feeds and and taking a piss back on Dark Side of the Moon? 
or am I reading way too much into this at this point? Uh, you might be overthinking that one, Joe. But oh, I have a cigar. I, I mean, I mean, you, you, what you're referring to, Roger's history of biting the hand that feeds. Yeah, it, it's just uh, it's very funny that the only place on this album that you get this sort of well, the most obvious place that you get this classic sort of you know backup singer thing going, they're cursing, which is just it. It's odd to me. Well, they do they they do it really well, and, and they do it perfectly. Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't this played on FM radio? Yes, I, I can't remember. It, apparently, it was it was uh, dubbed to um, stuff all that, I believe. Oh, okay. Well, well, well. A, a, as per biting the hand that feeds, the, he's deliberately attacking the wall. I would say not now, John. We've got to get on with a film show. Hollywood waits at the end of the rainbow. Who cares what it's about as long as the kids go? And this this is only a year after The Wall was released because The Wall was not released in 79. The movie right. was released in 82. And very shortly after this big blockbuster movie, he's blasting the film yeah. show. And, and I think that's consistent. It's an amazing tune. It, it alternates between these three sections you know, the classic shouting Gilmore, but then they've got that little weird-ass boogie-woogie thing in the middle. Can't stop, lose job, mine gone, silicon, czar bomb, yeah. what bomb, get away, payday, make hay, break down, need fix, big six, click, click, hold on, oh no, bingo, which actually, like, for the time, was edgy. It, was, it, was, it wasn't... And then when the background singers go, bingo! <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think it really fits. Like, like this isn't Getty Lee doing his own rap. Let, let me put it that way. Oh, thank God, no. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's not roll the bones. It, it 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 totally fit. It was totally appropriate. It kind of boogies a little bit, and and then and then they drop it down into the classic. This is a brilliant way for. The alter, alternating, you know, Gilmore Waters thing, where Waters gets to do make them laugh, make them cry. Yeah, yeah. that's that's perfect. Yeah, I, I I think compositionally brilliant writing, very good as a single. And if they made a shit ton of money by selling more albums because this was a single, then God bless them. That's what they needed to do. And you know, they they lived through horrible times. They recorded under horrible times. They didn't get along, but Damn it! When it was time for them to deliver, they 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 paid the bills for them, and uh, you know everyone involved in the album production. Ken, would you like to read the last two stanzas of Two Sons in the Sunset, or do you want me to? Oh, you shall say whatever I want to about Roger. When he puts his mind to it, he can he can land a story. So if we go then to the last two stanzas of Two Sons in the Sunset. Like the moment when the brakes lock and you slide towards the big truck. You stretch the frozen moments with your fear and you'll never hear their voices and you'll never see their faces. You have no recourse to the law anymore. And as the windshield melts, my tears evaporate, leaving only charcoal to defend Finally, I understand the feelings of the few, 
ashes and diamonds, foe and friend, we were all equal in the end. Fuck me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so... Mm-hmm. I, and and I, I focus on the lyrics because, honestly, as many times as I've listened to this album, I if I don't listen to it immediately, there's nothing I can say musically about Two Sons in the Sunset. When I read that, that Nick Mason was, you know, dismissed from playing on this, I had to ask myself, why? Because I, I there's nothing about it musically that ever sticks with me. But damn, those lyrics. <laughs> wow, nice. I actually really disagree with that. I think that's the one song that I really do uh, like musically. I think there's like, it's the one song on here that actually has a, a hook in it. The other elements to this album, although there are great elements that you guys talked about lyrically and and other things, this is the, the song that actually has a hook. Hmm. To me, it has the one thing that I can sink my teeth into. And so I'm. this is the one song that I'm, I'm really gelled about and this is this is the beauty of the palaver right because you know we all get little different things out of this and you know i think when you have something like the final cut that is you know it's not straightforward and it makes perfect sense that we would all gravitate to maybe different parts of it it's very cool uh joe remind me who that drummer is who temporarily replaced nick mason andy newmark I want to give him props. I mean, what I'm hearing here, it evokes for me Jackson Brown, uh, Saturday yeah. Saturday Night Live, Not Ready for Primetime Players. The, the, the drums are very dry, very well done right up front. It's 83, but it's evoking like a late 70s production. Like, like it's just so groovy and so tight. It could be Linda Ronstadt's band for all I know. And they, they, they achieve something really interesting here. That, that that you wouldn't get from the straight up Pink Floyd with Nick Mason. Whether or not that was necessary, I don't know. But do I like it? Yes. Andy uh, Newmark, so- American session drummer who is a member of Sly and the Family Stone and has played with John Lennon, Pink Floyd, David Bowie, and Roxy Music. That's a pretty decent resume. I'd say. Nice. And that gets us to the uh, end of the final cut. All right, hold on there, Mr. Beauclair. Oh, uh, yes, sir. I, I have a, I, I have something I want to get off my chest here. Wow. Um, so a couple weeks ago, we did a special episode, and we force-ranked the Pink Floyd album covers. I'm looking at the Final Cut album cover here. Yeah. Um, and I, as I remember, you put this ahead of Amagama. Yes. Is there... Anything? Do you want to change that at all? Do you have anything new you want to bring to the table with that? I mean, look at this cover. Do you really? Do you know what it is? Put this in front of Amagama. Do you know what it is? Well, Please tell us. And this this is just one of the things that fascinates me. So, this is if you think about a military uniform when decorated people have the little bars with all these different things oh. on them, right? Yeah. And, and what those are, what those represent is if you think about every medal that's awarded, if you look at the full medal, it, it's on like a little ribbon that, that has the medal itself. And each medal 
has its own specific ribbon. And when you get those small placards, they're representative of the pattern of the ribbon for the metal. And mm-hmm. that's what this is showing. And I've just always been fascinated with, with the way that the full metal gets transferred into this little tiny thing that you can stack up on top of each other without looking like, you know, some sort of European royalty doofus. So that's why I like this, this album cover because I get what it is and it speaks to me. And again, for all the cleverness aside, and we all know how I feel about people who get too clever. The fact of the matter is the band members in the Omagoma are not nice to look at. They're a scraggly, scary looking bunch. And I'm just not that impressed. So no, I do not want to change my tune. <laughs> All right. I mean, oh. you do know, though, that the second from the bottom, the black and white, is a a slate. It's nothing to do with It's like a, a film slate. The black and white is absolutely. I can pull pull a slate out of my this bag one. right now. Yes. Okay. That's that's a that's a film slate. Where you smack it down, and you're on film. I mean, I was not and aware so of that. That's like the final the final cut. That's so only the very last row is indicative of the medals. I don't know. Are they actually I don't know why he would put that in there? But okay. Well, Tom, I certainly I certainly do appreciate you trying to educate me and bring me around. I just yep. it, it has less to do with with the the final cut. Although, again, there are aspects of it I do like. I'm I'm now puzzled by this uh, by this new facet that you bring to the table. Um, but I just I fundamentally don't like Omagoma as an album cover. I just don't like it. Yes. Yeah, so I got a little bit of info here on. Um on the Final Cut album cover. Man, Palaver Research Department is going heavy, hot and heavy tonight. Yeah, so the whole, the whole black part with the red and, the, and then the black again in the upper left corner. Yeah. So I always thought that was like an LP, but it is actually, it is a portion of what is known as the Remembrance Poppy. Oh, there's that has your poppy. Been, there it is. That has been used since 1920 to commemorate soldiers who have died in war. Okay, so, so it's it's more ubiquitous than just World War One. That would explain the poppy. Okay, good. Exactly. There you go. And then the stripes in the fabric are indeed four different ribbons laid out on a black fabric in the background. From left to right, the medals are the 1939 to 45 star. So... That is the the um blue and the, red. the blue, and, and with a little bit of red there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Then you have the Africa star, which is the orange, black, red, and orange blue ribbon, and then the last one is the Deference medal, which is the green, black, and uh, it looks like a little bit of red in um in there. The purple thing, Tom, while I agree with you, it does look like the thing of on the film thing. It is actually the distinguished flying cross. So those are all medals or ribbons from uh, uh, medals. It's wonderful material. He just needed an editor, someone to kind of do something with this that was actually appealing. <laughs> I love it. Fantastic. Well, 
very, very fun conversation. I'm glad we got to, we had the excuse to go in and do a little palaver research on the fly. For me and the things that sort of float my canoe, I, I kind of dig it. So, and, and I didn't know about the poppy. So I think that's, that's very cool. And that sort of, ex again, explains the, the references throughout. So, you know, we've learned, uh, as we often do, we've learned a lot here on this episode. Mm -hmm. This obviously will bring a close to the Roger Waters era of Pink Floyd. And next episode, we will enter a brave new world. And I can once again um, evoke incessantly the podcast, The Lost Art of Conversation, which specifically covers the Pink Floyd, the later years section that we are now getting into. So um, any closing thoughts then on the final cut? either as an album or as an album cover. No, I, I want to say this. I've, I've appreciated this album, even though I don't like it so much, but I definitely appreciate it much more after hearing uh, both yours, Joe, and yours, Ken, your feelings about the record and, and the lyrics and such. Well done. Likewise. Well, good. Then we've accomplished something here this evening. Well, this could not be created without... Roger, you you could have you could stack up three Davids and and two Richards and and an army of Nicks and you would never get this kind of product. I mean, this is just you need a Roger to get to this point, right? And 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 I think that is that's going to be part of the themes that we discuss next week, gentlemen. As always, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful, wonderful evening, and I look forward to going on next week and talking about something. Not completely, but pretty different. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, questions, and feedback. What are your thoughts on Pink Floyd's The Final Cut? You can reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, sometime in the future Pandora, or presumably wherever you do find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. finish up with with this episode and, and the final cut i'm done i'm done with roger waters <laughs> this is just the kind of spice that the palaver pre-show needs <laughs> this is either going to get us banned from youtube or it's going to make us viral <laughs> maybe we might get 30 views <laughs>